Blog Talk Radio. mentions that 
her sports information director, Debbie Jennings, stops her and says, well, not everybody's getting going to get a pink shirt. It's just the people of the lower bowl. And so Pat gives her this look. And so when she finishes up the interview, Pat brings her into the control room where just I'm at running the board and then, you know, the show's in the studio. And she comes, brings her in the control room and says, wait a minute, you say I'm telling me that just the big money people are going to get the shirt, a free T-shirt? And she said, yeah, that's all they would pay for was just, you know, the lower bowl. And she said, nah. And she made her get on the phone right then, call up the people who were making the T-shirts for, the, you know, the Tennessee Athletics Department, making up those pink Lady Ball T-shirts, and found out how much it would be for everybody in the arena, 22,000-plus people to be able to get, make sure everybody got a free T-shirt. It was just over ten grand. I watched her take her checkbook out, write a check for the cost of the, for everybody else to make sure that anybody that came in the building got a T-shirt, handed it to her sports information director, told her to drop off the check, walked out. Didn't No fanfare, didn't want any credit for it, didn't, nothing like that. Covered it out of her own pocket to make sure everybody that walked in the arena, not just the big money donors, got a free T-shirt that night when they came in. And that's the kind of person Pat Summit was. I mean, she, we didn't see Pat Summit ever come into our studios to promote anything about Pat Summit. It was always about some charitable organization. It was always about... Um, you know, helping someone else and using the celebrity she had in, in East Tennessee to be able to help some other cause. But, I mean, not one time. You couldn't get her to come on to talk about, like, the beginning of the season. She'd do press conferences, but she'd be nice and do an interview with anytime anybody asked. But she only really came in studio and asked to come on to promote some charitable organization, whether it was in East Tennessee or nationwide or in the Southeast. Never one time did she ask to come on at any time to promote anything that the Lady Balls were doing, or that Tennessee was doing, or that Pat Summit was doing. That's the kind of person she was. She she was she she earned her celebrity the hard way. Because when she first started out, she was washing the uniforms, driving the bus, doing the, you know, what I mean, she she was the training staff. She was doing everything for them. And by the time we got to the mid '80s, women's basketball had arrived on the scene, and a lot of that's because of Pat Summit. You know, that that rivalry between Tennessee and Louisiana Tech was enormous in the '80s, and it put, I think, not just not just um, women's basketball on the map, but it, to some extent, especially in the southeastern United States, where sometimes we can be a little hot behind on the times. Let's be honest, right? It, it, it gave women a seat at you know what I mean. It gave women a seat at the table in the world of sports in the southeast beyond just basketball. And I think that her contributions probably it, they probably have been understated for most of her life, and that's because we kind of just took for granted everything that Pat Summit did. But like. For me growing up, like, it was no thing for women to play sports. It was no thing for women to talk about sports. Because when I was six years old, seven years old, eight years old, I remember sitting with my grandma in her kitchen watching the Lady Balls play on a little 13-inch color TV. You know, so it was, you know, I mean, they had female commentators. And I never thought twice about women being able to be in media. I never thought twice about women's sports having the same seat at the table that men's sports get. And that doesn't happen without Pat Summit. And so I think that her impact has been enormous for women in not just breaking glass ceilings for her, but it, for all of the world of sports, especially collegiately and in the Southeast, I think she was able to, to not just break the glass ceiling for herself, but crack it for other people to break. Within women within media, I think she created a seat at the table for women in media in the Southeast to be able to have that opportunity as well. And I think that it's it's just, I mean, it's unbelievable the impact that she had. Like you, like you mentioned, Benny, Trey, we can go ask. And these people asked us to call in, and we honestly couldn't fit everybody that asked in, in on our show. Trey Wingo's doing Wimbledon's coverage. He's anchoring Wimbledon's coverage for ESPN, and he's in London, and he's, like, sending text messages asking if he can come on because he wants to pay his respects to, you know, to the people of East Tennessee 
on behalf, you know, but on behalf of Pat Summit to pay his condolences. And so, you know, he, they get stuck with a rain delay, so he's having to buy time on the air for them while until the next match starts. So he's texting, apologizing. I'm sorry, I, were, I really want to come on. I'm going to come on as soon as I'll call you all as soon as I get a chance. Richard Deitch called in, uh, Dan Wolken. Uh, it was, I mean, it was just, or Dan Wetzel, I'm sorry. It was just over and over again, people just asking us, hey, can we call in? Can we pay our respects for, to the people? If they are, give our condolences to people of East Tennessee for the loss of Pat Summit. And that speaks volumes because these aren't the type of guys that do that. These are the guys that you chase down to get interviews, and sometimes it ain't easy, especially a guy like Wingo, you know, because ESPN only likes to let their guys come on ESPN affiliates. But Trey Wingo did this on his own, and he had the head of PR for ESPN set up the interview for us for him to come on and just shows the level of respect people around the nation had for Pat Summon. Now, uh, you know, 2016 has been a pretty rough year for, for legendary figures. And we've talked about this before, where you look at how Prince was revered in Minnesota, Minneapolis, hometown boy makes good. Uh, I'm here in Louisville, and, of course, with Muhammad Ali's passing, yeah. For everything he did, he was our guy. Is that the same kind of way it is with Tennessee and Pat Summit? You know, you can list off all her accomplishments and everything she's done, you know, with ESPN people, but it's those connections that it sounds like she made at the local level that people really, really cling to. Like, yeah, she was world famous, but, you know, she's Tennessee's Pat. Is that, is that kind of the same thing you're seeing? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Everybody you know in East Tennessee has a Pat Summit story. Some story about with Pat, they met Pat Summit or something crazy. They saw Pat Summit do that. Nothing bad crazy, but just kind of cool crazy that Pat Summit did because she just was – she lived life as like a larger-than-life figure a little bit. And she never – but she never big-timed anybody. Like, and it was one of the things that I think is just incredible to me. I never saw her self-promote. I never saw her big-time anybody. And everybody I've ever seen in coaching and in athletics, and I mean everybody, at some point in time, I've watched them self-promote. I've watched them big-time somebody. Never one time with Pat Summit was that the case. That was always – you know, the weird part about it, though, was because she was so down-to-earth, like, she gave me the stare one time because after she told me – she told me, to, like, I, when I first introduced myself, I was like, hey, Coach, I'm Will West. And she said, it's Pat. And then the next time I saw her, I called her Coach Summit again. And she gave me the stare, and I was like, "Yes, ma'am." You know, like it just—it uh, I might have wet my pants just a little tiny bit. You know what I mean? Just just a little bit. Um, but it was because of that. I think that people in East Tennessee maybe didn't realize that she was world famous, right? Like it didn't—it didn't occur to us that Obama gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom up there with Bob Dylan. You know what I mean? Like that's not something I don't think that people in East Tennessee kind of paid a lot of attention to. Because Pat was just Pat. You might see her at the Food City after church on Sunday, right? Like, you know, talking to the guy, the 16-year-old kid, the stock and tomatoes. Like, that's just kind of who she was and how she was. And maybe to some extent we didn't appreciate her in this area for what she'd done out, you know, globally, for what she'd done in basketball, for winning the gold medals and all of those things. Maybe we didn't appreciate her enough in this area for what she was because of how accessible she was, because of how down-to-earth she was, and because of how – what a large presence in our community she was. She was kind of our, our coach, not just this larger-than-life, you know, icon. Talking with Will West, co-host of Sports 180 on Sports Radio WNML, well as various other outlets in the Knoxville area. And Dick Battelle said the same thing to us that he said on the Fine Bomb Show, said that she was the – 
the best coach in Tennessee history. She is Tennessee, and he didn't mean any disrespect to Phil Fulmer, uh, General Neyland, or anything like that. And there were people going at him on Twitter. The dick wasn't but wasn't coming off of that statement. And Terry and I talked about it last week. Coaches come in and, and change culture and build programs. You know, Bruce Pearl, he built some, uh, some, some winning seasons there in Tennessee. Um, we talk about how Rick Pitino turned things around after getting set up here in Kentucky. But the program was there, the foundation was there, the tradition was there. When we say from scratch, Pat did it from scratch. All these other coaches have already have foundations and, and things laid out for them. They don't do it from straight up scratch like Pat did, do they? Yeah, no, I mean, look, Dan Wessel pointed it out to us, and it's something I never thought about. When Pat Summit started coaching women's college basketball, uh, women's basketball was played half court, three on three. And you'd have three girls on one side of the court, three girls on the other side of the court, and they didn't believe women could play full court basketball. I mean, that's that's when Pat Summit started coaching basketball was because of that. And so she it, – it's kind of amazing when you saw that. And a lot of it she got from her Team USA coach after she was at UT Martin – is who she kind of attributed to was that, you know, you played Olympic basketball and it was all the way up like that. And so when Pat, I mean, the women were wearing skirts and things like that. They weren't treated as if they're real athletes. And the belief was you couldn't train women like real athletes at the time at a collegiate level. And Pat Summit changed all of that stuff, you know? So you're right. She didn't just build, she didn't just build a program. She built a sport because there is no WNBA without Pat Summit. There is no, you know, there there is no Candace Parker, there is no Elena Deladon, there 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 is no Brittany Griner without Pat Summit. I mean, she put all of that on the map, and she had people to help her along the way, and she always made sure to give those people credit. But because of like she was bigger than the sport she played, and it, it's something that you know, my Josh and I talked about, my co-host. Like, how many people can you think of? I'll, I'll just ask you guys. How many people can you think of that were bigger than their sport? Like MJ first stretch was bigger than a sport. Tiger was bigger than a sport. I think Muhammad Ali is a guy who was bigger than a sport, but I don't know that I can name five people in the world of sports that were bigger than the sport that they played and or coached. No, I mean, that's, that's a short list. And you've just named two that, you know, we've lost, you know, here within the last month of each other that just trade. And, and the thing is, when you hear these stories about Pat Summit, I don't think I've heard one about a game she coached in. I don't think I've heard somebody say, you know, my best Pat Summit memory is, you know, the 1998 Final Four or or, or whatever. It's 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 these other stories that are getting the play, and that's when you know how great someone is, what their impact really is. Yeah, you know, we had uh, one of the associate athletics directors that's been around for a long time with UT, Debbie Thomas, and she she met, she brought that up to us, and she called it our show. And, kind of wanted to pay her respect. So she brought up the uh, – she said about Pat, she said one time we lost a game. So Pat Summit found out inside the hotel where people were playing blackjack illegally in a hotel room so that she could go crash their game because she said, I got to win at something tonight. So she waited until she got about $200 up, and then she walked out of the room with <laughs> up 200 bucks just because she had to walk away a winner. Like So it's stories like that that even from a competitive standpoint you hear about Pat Summit. You're right, it's not about the basketball. It's not about the stuff that she did. But I will say from a basketball standpoint, the one thing that I always heard her say that was the most consistent thing I ever heard her say about basketball was 
you, who, no matter who you are, no matter how good of an athlete you are, no matter how many star ratings are beside your name, you can rebound and you can play defense because that's not about, about talent. That's about effort. So you can do that regardless of who you are. And it's, that was the only thing I really remember in speaking to her as many times as I spoke to her that, that she really, really, really said about basketball. Everything else is always about life, which was just kind of interesting. And I think it's a lot of why Pat Summit was that, – that's the thing people remember about Pat Summit is the way she lived life more so than, I guess, the people that even had any type of connection to her or, uh, or dealings with her. More so than the basketball, she was about living life, you know, and that's and about making sure people were successful in life and not just basketball. And that's one of those things that gets tossed around a lot with coaches, you know, makers of men, makers of women, teaching people about life. And it's interesting that those people that actually do it aren't the ones that are always talking about it. I mean, yeah. uh, just, just just looking at, you know, every four-year player she had got a degree. I mean, that's that's why I mean that's that's ridiculous. I mean that's what that is. That she didn't let not one player, you know, fall through the cracks. That is a tremendous testament to, you know, the NCAA's kind of hokey thing we make fun of, you know, going pro and something other than sports, but that's the culture that she built and that's what her legacy is. You know, and, and all the times that I've heard coaches say do things the right way, right? Like all kinds of coaches like to throw that out there. We like to do things the right way or we do things the right way here. Every single one of them I've ever meet, known or had any dealings with, it was a lie. And I mean all of them. But, but like, either they – look, and, that, and I don't know what how egregious it is if you pay players in college. It happens all the time. Academic fraud, covering up violent crimes. Every single time, every single person that ever said – talked about doing it the right way, they were a liar, except Pat Summit. Like, she, there wasn't nobody getting paid on her program. That didn't exist. If you want to do that, you can go somewhere else. And she lost a lot of players to an SEC school I won't mention. That is not a fair where you are. I'll just say another SEC school because she wouldn't pay players and people started paying players. And she, you know, she wouldn't use uh, some other things to try to get players in there. She wouldn't negatively recruit. She wouldn't. You were going to have to go to class. You were going to have to sit in the first three rows of class. And if you didn't, you were going to run. And if you skipped class, you, you got suspended for a half the first time. If you, or if you skipped class, you missed a game. If you missed curfew, you got suspended for a half. That's, that's what she did. She did to Kansas Parker. Kansas Parker's junior year, they're, gonna, they're, they're up in Chicago, and they booked that game against DePaul just so Kansas Parker can play in front of her hometown crowd. Kansas Parker misses curfew, gets, just shows up late for curfew. Pat Summit sat her for a half right there in front of her friends and family, and they'd booked that whole trip to Chicago just for her, man. And that, she, she didn't care who you were. She was going to do it the right way. I remember that. I remember that. I sure do. <laughs> and she went about to compromise, you know, because of it's her star player. Uh, you know, it didn't matter. <laughs> A rule had been broken, and, hey, you know, consequences had to be paid out. Yeah, this is, this is the standard. You, you better play, but you know what I mean? You agreed to play about it, and if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else, and it doesn't matter who you were. <laughs> That's right. I appreciate you just going in depth more on Pat. While we got you, I gotta I gotta get your thoughts too on the last few minutes. First of all, Terry, Will is a huge Celtics fan. Of course, you're all that purple and gold, so that's gonna be fireworks immediately. We're all the same age, so we all know that this. Will. Will's a huge NBA guy like we are, Terry. Uh, his co-host, Josh Ward, makes fun of him of watching, like, 1987 Netflix games against the ACC. 
So he's, he's right there with us as far as the NBA is concerned. I got to get your thoughts on however way you want to do it. You want to go Kevin Durant, going to Golden State, and of course I want to get your thoughts on Al Horford going to your Celtics. So. I guess I'll start with Al Horford. Like, the thing with that is $26 million a year is a lot of money, right? I like Al Horford as a player. He's not the player he once was. He's a better outside shooter. I don't know that that's necessarily where his skills are most uh, needed. They're, they're most needed on the Celtics. I don't know that that necessarily plays into his skill set. But that's kind of, you know, that's, that's – the Celtics need that. They need somebody that can knock it down from outside, stretch the floor a little bit. Horford could do that. I'd rather he play with his back to the basket, face up 12 to 15 foot in. But it's it is what it is, right? This is the NBA. It's it's over thirty years old. You probably got three good years left in you, and the Celtics are going to pay you. Got to pay you twenty six million a year for four years just to get you into the building, and then maybe you can try to draw another superstar in because you brought in an all star caliber player like like a Horford for Durant. It's just the era we're in, right? You know, I mean, I killed LeBron when he went to Miami, and I was like, what is this guy doing? That is so soft. And now I just look at it and say, this is just the era we're in. If it were me, and I also kind of like, I've been doing this a little bit longer now, and I realize that these guys are just dudes. And if you told me, hey, Will, would you like to go on ESPN and join Mike and Mike right now, and we'll pay you exactly you know, as much money. We can, you can have your own thing on Fox Sports and go up against Mike and Mike, or we'll let you join Mike and Mike, and you get the same money either way. Guess which one I'm going to do, right? I'm going to join Mike and Mike because it's going to make me more successful. So I, I kind of look at it like Durant did that. It makes the NBA less fun. It'll probably make it actually more fun to watch for one year. Year two, it'll be interesting to see if they, you know, how much interest there is. I'm really interested to see does Durant become public enemy number one the way LeBron became public enemy number one? Because you know, we, we everybody, the whole world was rooting for the Dallas Mavericks that year against LeBron James. <laughs> I think Durant's a likable guy. I think Steph Curry's a likable guy. I think Clay Thompson's a likable guy. I think Draymond kicking folks in their plums, but outside of that, I think he's a likable guy. So I don't know that the world's going to root against Golden State, especially if they're playing LeBron in Cleveland. We're so used to rooting against LeBron. I, I think that they may still end up being kind of America's sweethearts, even though they've got a stacked deck. And LeBron was the first to do it, so he, he bore the brunt of it. It's like you said, it's been done now, so it's not as shocking. Even though we've had loaded teams, I mean, y'all, your Celtics, when we were kids, Terry's Lakers when we were kids were loaded. Not the first time we've seen stacked teams. That's why I was Celtics-Lakers every year, and I, that's why I don't like either one of them because I was tired of seeing both of them in the finals every year. But it, LeBron, was the first to, <laughs> LeBron was the first to do it and, and join up like that. So I think, you know, he paved the way, if you will, for others. And KD's done it. I don't think he'll get as much shade or hate. Yeah, no, I don't think well, so at all. But I think a part of it is that he's likable too, right? Like LeBron's kind of a different guy a little bit, and we all had those stories. Like we remember LeBron at the dunk contest when Nate and Dwight are about to go head-to-head. He's got to make sure he gets on the microphone and says, I'm going to be at the dunk contest next year, and then he doesn't show up. <laughs> You had the Nike story that at his camp he had Nike confiscate the videotape of, that, of a college kid dunking on him. But, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you had those things that were out there, and then you threw the decision on top of it, and it was like, oh, heck, no, this guy did not. So, but Durant, we don't have that. Everybody likes Durant a whole lot. So, you know, because of the story, the backstory, the MVP speech about his mom and all of that stuff, because of that, I think that, you know, people look at Steph, and I think they can. He's more relatable than LeBron is because he's six foot one, one seventy five, 
And I think most people can look at Steph Curry and say, I can relate to that a whole lot more than LeBron, who's 6'8", 265, and might be the fastest guy on the court. So I think because of that, Golden State, they're not going to get close to the level of criticism. Very true, very true. I got to ask as well, in the latest news coming out of Knoxville and UT, the settlement, the Title IX settlement, university paid today uh, to the young women uh, with the sexual assaults and the whole Tennessee culture of sexual assault, and they're trying to change it. Tennessee's standpoint now going forward, I mean, if let me ask you this. If, if they hadn't settled today and it goes to trial, is Tennessee getting lit up if this thing continues to go further? Let me, I'll just ask you that first. I'll tell you, they were going to lose. Like, one way or the other, they were going to lose. Because there's a, in the state of Tennessee, there's, um, there's a thing called the Uniform Procedures Act, which states that a state employee or a, or a uh, university student at a state school can request a hearing where they get to, anytime they've been accused of a situation like this, whether it's sexual assault or sexual harassment, they can cross-examine the accuser, but the accuser doesn't get to cross-examine them, and the uh, it is a judge is appointed to the case by whoever the head of that state department is or the chancellor of the university. So it was in violation of Title IX, this Uniform Procedures Act hearings were, and Tennessee did them left and right. So even though they were in violation, they weren't not in violation of state law, they were in violation of uh, federal law. So they were, they were dead in the water. So it, they could not pay it off. And then, then you find out all the other dirty stuff that may have happened of when did Butch Jones know about this? What did he say to Dre Bowles? What, you know what I mean? All these other little things that you just don't want coming out if you're the you know, university. Plus, what if you could ask anything else in there? What if you could ask, Butch Jones is recruiting well. What if you get, get asked, you know, to, if, if they're speaking to character, have you broken NCAA rules? Did you pay players? Did you do this? Have you committed? You don't need your coach up on the stand getting cross-examined by a lawyer that's trying to prove that he has, uh, you know, that the culture is ugly at the University of Tennessee and that they break rules. So you don't need any of that. They were going to lose either way. So to pay this off, it's not nearly as much. You know, you don't have the legal fees you would have had if you wait two years to go to trial. I don't know why in the world they, Tennessee did all the grandstanding. They did pound the table about we didn't do this and all this stuff when they did a good portion of it. I don't think they did all of it. But I do think that some portion of it happened I think one of the cases in particular, they thought that the player was innocent. And I think they stacked the deck in favor of that player. And I think that that alone was enough to make them lose. I think the Uniform Procedures Act hearings was enough to make them lose. So you can pay now or you can pay later. It's up to you. And they went ahead and decided to pay now. But from what I'm told, that came from the university president. It's not what the chancellor or the athletics director at the University of Tennessee wanted to do. But the president and the board of trustees said, stop being it against pay. And we're talking with Will West of Sports 180 and, of course, Radio WNML here in Knoxville. You, whenever you see settle, you – well, I do. I think most of us assume something happened. You know, we know Kobe and the young lady in Colorado settled. Whenever you hear settlement, I mean, that, that puts an end to the negativity, but you, you know something happened. Tennessee is, is saying, you know, they, they didn't express guilt or say they were guilty. Uh, and, of course, they settled today. But yet they also say we've made a lot of progress when it comes to matters like this. So that lets you know if things weren't where they need to be, even though they're saying they're not guilty. 
it came across as a lot of talking in circles to me. Uh, what was your thought? Uh, look, I mean, here's the thing. Every time that Tennessee has spoken publicly about this, they told a lie. It doesn't mean everything they said was a lie, but every time they spoke publicly about this, Butch Jones did a, did a impromptu press conference about this at a University of Tennessee basketball game this year. Like over just over to the side of it with the media, kind of over where you wait to go to the media room to to interview coaches and get through the press conferences. And it said that he had no conversations with the police department at that time. Well, we find out later when the you know the police he did have conversations with the police department ahead of time. Uh, Dave Hart said the only person that deals with anything when it comes to Title IX and has any conversation with the players once an allegation's been made was one guy that works within the athletics department that's the liaison to the Title IX people. And we found out that wasn't true either, right? So every time Tennessee has spoken publicly, they've told a lie. So they, they have no credibility. And that's one thing that hurts them. Now, again, I don't think they did everything. Some of the stuff was a little bit frivolous, like the Alexis Johnson situation. What he did was awful. I'm not trying to say that. But the woman sued, the, joined the lawsuit 10 days after Alexis Johnson's accused of assaulting her. How can you judge what the university's response is 10 day, into within 10 days, right? whether or not they went through a full Title IX hearing when there wasn't time for a Title IX hearing. So they didn't do everything there, but they definitely did something, and they were going to lose. At the end of the day, even if you take away all the things that were on there that looked awful, they were in the lawsuit, like taking women out of school and things like that and pressuring women to not, um, you know, that were on athletic scholarships, that they may lose their scholarship if they do this or that. Even And Tennessee denied it, but even if all those things aren't true, the Uniform Procedures Act hearing alone was enough that they were going to lose this case probably. So, yeah, they, they paid because they were going to lose. That's what they paid at the end of the day. So they've, they've said changes are in place and the culture is on the uptick. So now, of course, we'll see if if the actions match the words. Uh, I'll ask you one question about Tennessee on the field, and I'll let you get, man. I sure appreciate the time. Oh, Tennessee is the favorite in the East. Uh, they kind of got everything where they wanted to be, depth, experience, uh, momentum. They've got a bad taste in their mouth from last year when maybe they were uh, a year ahead of schedule but had some wins put through their fingers. Do Tennessee fans, would, if they had to pick just one, would they pick a win over Florida, who they have you know, double-digit losing streak to, or would they go ahead and pick win the SEC I think when the East matters the most. Now, you, you'll get some crazy people that will say, well, I'd rather beat Florida and go 7-5 and five than win the East this year. But I think that at the end of the day, they'd rather win the East. If you win the East, you can believe you're really back. And after all the Billy Goods Tennessee fans have been sold about Lane Kiffin and his staff, three years of Derek Dooley where everybody's like, no, 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 you're headed in the right direction. Here's the, it's coming, it's coming. And we're all sitting there being like, no, it's not. I'm watching these guys play, right? Like, I'm seeing them stand next to Alabama players the media day and it ain't close who the bigger, stronger, faster athlete is, right? So it's, it's, they've been sold to Billy Goods for so many years. It's taken four years under Butch instead of just three to rebuild the program. I think that they'll take, people will take the SEC East right now. If they can get there and get back in the SEC title game, I think Tennessee fans will feel like they can finally breathe easy. But I will say, if you lose to Florida and win the East at 9-3 and three this year, if you're Butch Jones, Ooh, you don't need. You do not need to slip back to eight and four next year. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's it's all set up, you know, this year. Uh, I know next week you you take your uh, your drive down that lovely patch of U.S. Interstate, that Highway 50, 
69 from Knoxville to Birmingham. Great to see me Ooh, today. The worst, man. So, uh, <laughs> I know it'll <laughs> yeah, be a lot of like fun. Do it. It's the worst. If y'all have ever driven, if y'all ever driven from Louisville to Indianapolis, if y'all ever made that drive, that drive's yeah. awful. That drive from Chattanooga to Birmingham is the it's like that times five. It's like going into a third world country, <laughs> and so you get into Birmingham. It is the worst. Like I would, I don't feel comfortable. I'm like from a small southern town, and I don't feel comfortable in that level of rural area. You know what I mean? Like just five thousand people in my town. And I don't feel comfortable at all in Gadsden, Alabama, and they've got a Walmart, you know. <laughs> Man, I just sincerely appreciate the time, Will. Appreciate you going in on Pat Summit and then all the other developments with the Title IX. We had to hit a little NBA free agency. But, man, it's an honor, as always, to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Anytime you guys want to have me on, man, I, I love doing it. So I appreciate your time, man. We appreciate right. it. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot, Will. That's my dude, Will West, Sports 180, Sports Radio WNML, talking Pat Summit, NBA free agency, and, of course, the Title IX settlement that UT just had to pay $2.48 million uh, to those young ladies who were victims of sexual assaults by various different players uh, and some of the UT students. So a very bad situation. Uh, we will go right to our next guest TV. They are just one after another. This man, former UK running back, NFL running back, Northeast Ohio native. And, of course, we're going to talk UK, but we we got to talk Northeast Ohio with this man. Since the Cleveland Cavaliers just won the NBA title and won the title for the city of Cleveland in over uh, 50 years, first one since Jim Brown won a chip back in the 60s. We got Mr. Anthony White on Cats Talk Wednesday with Vinnie Hardy and Terry Brown right now. Hey, Dub, what's going on, man? Are you there, Anthony? Oh, might not have Anthony. got this call. Let's see if we'll get him back. Um, But we jump right into it, TV. We have Will on right that. Anthony White is scheduled to come on. Tim Bray, who we had on Tucky Motor Speedway, is going to come on again because all the races, truck race, uh, Sprint Cup and all that is this weekend. And then Tim Biggs is a former athletic trainer for UK football. So I thought it would be awesome to get some stories from his perspective. And he was a trainer back in the day talking about uh, when Warren Bryan and those guys were there. So it's going to be fun as well. We had a fun guest already. Got more fun guests on the way. So, how you been? We'll say that. So we ain't got no guests. And what is your thoughts <laughs> on free agency? And just let's catch our breath for a minute. <laughs> well, you know, you, you knew this was coming as far as free agency because of the way the salary cap was going to jump. You know, this is the year that a lot of uh, players and player agents were looking for was the big jump, which is why you've got guys that, I mean, there's a bunch of guys I've never heard of getting $40 million contracts. I mean, that just seems, uh, that just seems ridiculous uh, to me, but that's, that's kind of the, the, the world we, we live in right now. I'm going to bring our guy Anthony White back on in as you talk right now, too, but Anthony White is back. Can you hear me now? Anthony. Yes, sir. 
Yes, oh, sir. How you doing? All right. I'm doing pretty good, Sorry, man. Justin. Still soaking up the victory. <laughs> Which, are, now, that's why we are, are want you to like have J.R. Smith. Are, are you? Are you? Are you? Do you have a shirt on? You know, J.R. Smith was doing everything without a shirt for days and days after the championship. Do you have a shirt on now? I know that was kind of the thing. Funny thing is, right now I do not have a shirt that I can't afford to put a shirt on because my AC is broken and it is like ninety degrees in here. So I'm not Uh-oh, doing J.R. Smith and the Cavs thing, but I gotta stay cool however I can. <laughs> I've been I've been there, man. With that, when the AC goes out in the dead of summer, it, it ain't no fun. TV asking you what you're wearing. That's kind of that's a little bit weird. I'm just saying the show has taken a turn. <laughs> no, hold up, hold up, hold up. Just because Jr. Smith didn't have a shirt on after the game during the parade, I saw uh, pictures of him golfing without a shirt. Uh, finally, he put a shirt on. That's all. <laughs> I'm going to have to remember to ask uh, James when I talk to him why, what was that whole shirt thing about? I don't know if it's a statement or if he feels like he's free or maybe he thinks the girl's <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, man, we, of course, we've had you on many times. We appreciate you coming on every time, Anthony. But, but this time, you know, I, of course, we'll get to some UK football, but I just want your thoughts and perspective. Like you said, it's still sinking in. Just take us back to wherever you want. If you want to go back to childhood as a Cleveland fan, just growing up in that area, I mean, the fumble, the drive, the heartache, whatever, just start wherever you want to start and tell us how you're feeling now that you've seen the city of Cleveland win a title. Just just start wherever you want to start and win this See, the funny thing is, if you ever listen to our show, uh, Mark, our host, is a is a Cincinnati fan, so he acts like there's some Cincinnati-Cleveland beef because there's, you know, two um, MLB and football teams in there. So, And I've always I've always been impartial. Like, I, I'm not a, I've never really been a Cleveland fan. I've liked Eric Metcalf and uh, Ozzie Newsom. I, I've liked a few players throughout the years, but I've never been, like, a diehard. Like, the rest of my family, my cousins and, and those guys are Ohio State. And just Cleveland fans, I mean, die hard. One of my cousins painted his basement with the brown, white, white and brown stripe right down the middle of his basement. So that, I mean, that's what I've been surrounded by for years. But I never committed. I've never committed to one. And it's funny when I was a child, we would go to you know to the football hall of fame, or we would drive by Brian Brennan's house, Webster Slaughter's, all those guys' house, and I wouldn't be impressed. Just like. Uh, Okay, well, you know, those guys play football. And I think that has something to do with my personality that I've never been starstruck by anybody because, you know, I, you know, I, I, I was destined to be in one of those positions one day, and I, I just felt like, I don't know, I just felt like, okay, I'll be there one day, you know, as a kid. So that's kind of the background of, of my Cleveland fandom. And then it got kind of, when I got older, maybe in high schoolish it got a little bit more serious when I was, oh, these guys are about to win a championship. So I supported them because, you know, it's a home team. Everybody else in the house is supporting them. And then, you, like you said, you have the drive. Then you have the fumble. Then you got Jordan over Elo, which I couldn't be mad about because I'm a huge Jordan fan. And <laughs> after that, it kind of it kind of seemed, after a while, it just became synonymous with, with losing. No matter what happened, you know, we just, you know, seemed like it's, they're, they're going to lose. 
And so my thing was, I think for the longest was, you know, that's what this, that's what this city is. You know, then the, you kind of get that whole feeling of the city. I'm not sure if you've ever been to, there used to be a mall when I was a younger kid, which was more in the urban area, which was Randall Park Mall. Like now, grass growing all through the parking lot. The mall is, the windows are broken. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sad when I go down there because when I was a child, that's the place that we would go, uh, you know, to, you know, congregate or, you know, meet up with your friends, you're shopping or whatever. And it's and that's just kind of how how the city how the city is like nobody really cared we didn't seem to care for each other and it was just uh, it's just a, a cloud it just seemed like it was a cloud over the whole city and I'm 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 taking all this in as a kid so it's not really a big thing because I'm not an adult and I don't have to worry about living there or anything I got a future ahead of me but I realize that now looking back on my life was that the reason I felt that way as a kid because that's just how the city was it just had a black cloud over it, it had a negative just a negative feel over the city and 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 winning this game. I think the three one, a lot of people jumped off the bandwagon, and when we got to three three. I think I mean you could feel the whole city band together. I seen people on my Facebook feed that I've never, I didn't even know were Cleveland fans. There were people coming out the woodworks that I didn't even know had Facebook or were posted. But once they <laughs> won the game, and I talked to James and uh, I talked to Posey and I seen some uh, some videos of him in Las Vegas where our other best friend was at. And then, it, you know, just the elation everybody had, especially my family members who waited 40 years, because, like I said, we are, we're not we're not over 40, but, you know, so for us it's only been 40 years. But it, it just kind of like, wow, like actually, and then the whole city came together, the celebration didn't have any, I didn't see anything negative going on the celebration. There was one incident that had nothing to do with the celebration. It was just an idiot that made an idiotic uh, move. But, I mean, just the way that, Every, and now, like, like everybody in the city is happy to high-five each other. I mean, it's still going on to, to this minute. You know, there's no – as far as I know, there's no drama, no trouble in the city. Everybody's just happy to celebrate and high-five and everybody else. they happy to be a Clevelander. And it changed overnight. Like, it changed overnight within a week's time. The whole feeling of being living in Cleveland or just traveling in Cleveland has changed. Wow. And, and that's that's what I was wanting to do, to get that vibe, that sense the actual to actual to actually see it happen. Uh and the fact that at three to one, like you said, it was probably just looking like another chapter in Cleveland history. Well, add this one to the list of times we come up short. I watched that Believe Land thirty for thirty, uh and like you said on Facebook, I saw where you talking about how you said we say we traveled up through there. Uh, I was tweeting you last year because I went through Twinsburg on the way to uh, the family reunion. Uh, I got an uncle in um, Chagrin Falls. Um, got an uncle in Akron. So I've, I've been there, but it's not like I grew up there. But when it's 3-1, it looks like they're dead in the water. On that Believe Land documentary, I didn't even know about part of the river and the lake setting on fire. I didn't know about the mayor's head catching on fire on TV. All this other stuff that just made people look at Cleveland and just kind of smirk and laugh. I didn't know about all of that. And then you had the sports history on top of it. The Steelers are winning Super Bowls left and right an hour up the road. And it's just unbelievable how this this frustration from, you know, the Indians losing the World Series, all that, how it just built up over time. It's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was so bad to the point where you know, my uncle's a diehard. He used to sit in the dog pound all the time. 
he would go. They would go to the games, and that's one good thing I always liked about Cleveland, which I can't. I mean, I can kind of relate to a little bit from not being for Kentucky football and not being so successful for you know some periods. Is that he would go to the game? Total intention is to inflict pain or harass the players from both teams, Cleveland and wherever they were playing. But I mean, that was that was just his thing. Like they didn't expect to win, they didn't care. They just wanted to go just to have a good time. Where you know, I, I didn't think they. And I, I mean, I, I think that's what the city what the what the city was about. You hear a lot of athletes. I mean, one very notable athlete was Carl uh, Malone. Who after they played in Cleveland, he would he would fly out that night, no matter how late they played. He he did not like the the uh, the city of Cleveland. He would not stay there. And you know, a lot of players, pro players, have said they won't play in Cleveland just because of the field. Like I said, it was just the field. And uh, and and like you said, even with three one, we were down three one. I was on people on Facebook. I was a little bit on the bench. So I would like to see it come back. I I didn't like the way the Golden State uh, beat the Bulls record and. And there's just a lot of things that go there. You know, I think they were getting a little too much credit too early. And, and and what happened is what I expected to happen. You get a little physical with them and make them play up-tempo. They may, you know, throw them off their game, throw them off balance so you can get a win. But their people at that point were writing the differences between LeBron and, and Steph. Who's going to be the greatest? Or LeBron couldn't win. Now, if he lost to Golden State two years in a row, I think that would hurt his, that would hurt his legacy pretty good. And I think winning it, I think, overcame that. And, and here was my thing. I initially picked the Cavs in seven to win, not not to toot my own horn. But as an athlete, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to toot it. But as, as an athlete, LeBron <laughs> being as competitive as he is, has heard about how Steph has lapped him, and, and now Steph is the big big guy on the block. And, and you've been in a competitive situation. Does that give you that extra push, or is that just nonsense talk? Oh, that absolutely gives you, I mean, that extra push. When I, I mean, from my perspective, when I played in Florida or, you know, you're playing against Alabama, and if you go back and check the stats, my, my, my stats against Florida, Tennessee, Alabama, what other top teams are in the South Carolina, the top teams in the SEC, my stats against them, I guarantee, are up there with any, any SEC greats. Because those are the games where I had to step up, and I was relied on more in those games. I did. I didn't have my stats aren't great against Vandy. They aren't great against some of the doormats of the SEC. But LSU, Alabama, Florida, Tennessee—I mean, probably eighty percent of my production has come from those those games. And it just, you know, once you once you're out there, and I'm not in LeBron's shoes because I don't have the weight of a whole state on my back. And that's the big thing about him—he had the weight of a whole state on his back. His only pro team in the in the state. And when it comes down to letting this little guy sit for one little guy just run around and have his way, I mean, like I said, LeBron led in all offensive categories. That's kind of the games you have to have if you want to be talked about amongst the greats or, you know, cherish championships or, or, or actually be a leader. That was my whole question at 3-1. and one, I posted on Facebook, I question LeBron's leadership, now we will know. And, and he answered the bell for me. And, 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 and for me, too, he, he is – moving himself up that ladder. Uh, there's that video on YouTube. Somebody's got all six blocks that LeBron had on Steph Curry, you know, in the finals. And just the the dismissive how dare you look on his face was very reminiscent of Jordan. Like, just offended that you would even attempt, you know, to guard him or or, or whatnot. And, and I love that side of LeBron 
that we really hadn't seen him be completely just dismissive of his opponent. And, and I think that's how he got the troops rallied from that 3-1 deficit. Yeah, and I think LeBron knew that was there. I've, I've questioned all season long, and especially early in the season, why do nobody ever contest Steph's layups? Like, I can understand you you, you being a little leery out there on the three-point line when he's shooting from, from almost half court. But when he's going to the hole, you know, people kind of go over there and look, give a half effort. I'm like, this guy's only 6'1". And I played basketball at 6'1", at 6'2", and I can block shots. So if I'm 6'8", or 6'9", you can always beat the guy at the glass. Like, why, why is nobody contesting it? And like I said, I, I, I am. I, I don't want to take anything away from the win. And as you may know from listening to us on Sundays, I am a little bit on the side of some of the sports being fixed. And I'm not saying that was a complete fix. But I, all of a sudden, everybody starts contesting Seth's shots in the lane or, or at, at, the, at the hole or in the block, which I hadn't seen all year. And that's what really upset me when the series was going on. I'm like, why y'all letting this guy get away with this? You know, nobody's going to contest. Nobody's even going to make an attempt to block his shot once he gets past the first man. And, and, and LeBron did otherwise down the stretch. Yeah, and I think it started with that block he had uh, on that dead ball that, that Steph was trying to get that layup. You know, the whistle had been blown and, and <laughs> you know, blocked that one layup and kind of setting that uh, setting that tone. Yeah, like I said, I think LeBron was destined. I think he had to put his team on his back. And, and like I said, there's I, I earned a whole new respect for, for, Le, for LeBron. I question, like I said, his greatness. And, you know, to me, that moved him up into the top three. I mean, the things he's done and, and the, the roster, and, I, and I've said this a hundred times, the roster he has, people question Kyrie Irving, but the roster he has, Kyrie Irving is probably the only really NBA talent on there. Now, JR's a good shooter. Uh, the other guys are just role players who can do one thing very well. Kyrie is the only one you know that can, you know, probably play some defense, get to the hole, shoot the J, you know, can handle the ball. Uh, but that's the only person else. That only, that's the only other person that was on the court where you know that was that was not one dimensional besides LeBron and you know playing against a team full of guys that are are multi dimensional and and ball movement. I mean, and he did it. He I mean he did a lot more with less. So that's that's another reason I give him a lot of credit. Oh, definitely. And of course, now with free agency popping the way it is, uh, the Cavs will have a little bit of a different look. Delavadova has signed with Milwaukee. Terry is a Lakers fan, and now he has the services of Timothy Mozgov, and I know he's jumping for joy over that. So, <laughs> I am, yes. <laughs> so, what do you think? What do you think going forward? You think, you think D-Wade, do you hear those whispers that, you know, Wade's mad about Miami because they're, they're trying not to pay him after he took less money for years? You think D-Wade tries to, you know, repay LeBron by teaming up with him in Cleveland? Is that a possibility? Or, or what, do you, what, what do you see the Cavs looking like going into next year? I mean, I can see Dwayne, I can see Dwayne uh, coming to Cleveland only because Cleveland and LeBron, well, not really Cleveland, but LeBron and the opportunity to, you know, to go after another championship. I'm not actually sure that, that Wade would be the answer in Cleveland to all the other acquisitions being made and all the – of the transactions being made. I think they need more of an, another stretch forward or a big guy uh, that, can, that can get in the lane and muck it up a little bit in there. So I, I, I think Dwayne could go there because it gives him the opportunity to win a championship. And as good as good of friends as LeBron 
and Dwayne Wade appear to be to make a whole lot of sense. But, I mean, I, I thought going into this after the Kevin Durant situation, after the Kevin Durant deal, I thought Pal Gasol would have been Pal Gasol would have been a an excellent move for the Cavs. I'm not sure what it would have taken for them to get him, but uh, and now he's with the Spurs. So I mean that that, that that's huge. But I thought that would have been a good move. But I I think Dwayne may go there because I don't think he has enough parts in Miami to uh, to make a run in the East. And I just think you, with LeBron, he, he will have a young guard around him who he won't have as much attention and may not have to play hard because he played inspired this this season. He played really. He shows that he's he still has a couple years in him and can still play the game. So I think that would be a perfect fit for him just because he won't be asked to do so much. And, you know, he can still, I think, he can prolong his career for another, probably another year or two past what he may have had. And he he, he did, he played great last year after everybody was kind of writing him off. Uh, he had a, a good season and a, a strong run in the playoffs before they got knocked out. Yeah, I said I hope I hope Cleveland can get him, and I don't know if we've been busy celebrating if we did, we got some quiet uh, we got some quiet uh, movements going on, but it seems like everybody's getting shifted around in that Kevin Durant thing, like they're beefing up, you know, trying to get uh trying to get ready to repeat against the Cavs, or play the Cavs again in the championship. And like I said I don't know if we're still celebrating, we're still on the honeymoon from the championship, but we I think we do need to make a couple acquisitions whether it be Dwayne Wade, but I, I would like a, another probably three, four, another power small forward rather than a guard because I think we can do with the guards we have. But, I, but like I said, a player like Dwayne Wade, you can't pass up anyway. So if we can get him, that I, I think that will do us a, a, big, uh, a big deal of service. Let me switch real quick. Um, talking with former UK running back Anthony White. Um, football season is right around the corner. So we can talk about the Cats for a minute. Um, and just from the standpoint, another offensive coordinator, Eddie Grand, Darren Henshaw are coming in. We see it all the time in the NFL. We, we talked about, you know, Jason Campbell, quarterback, he seemed like he had a different offensive coordinator every year. Other guys have done it as well, you know, changing the system. How difficult is that for guys in college? You know, this will be, you know, the third offensive coordinator, you know, Neil Brown, the Shannon Dawson, the A.D. Grand. How difficult is that for guys in college, or is it easier than I'm thinking, or, you know, to have to get in a new playbook each year at the college level? You know, the the, the funny thing and the good thing, well, I really can't say a good thing, but the, the odd thing about it is, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's not a good thing to change offensive coordinators every year because I've always been a big fan of, you know, the, the more years you get into it, and I know how it was my junior and senior year playing, that I could just play. I didn't have to think. I mean, when we come out of the huddle, I'm I'm looking at things that I'm sure that the defense is, that doesn't even know that I'm looking at. I'm looking into the second and third levels when I'm getting the handoff because I know, you know, it's just certain things. You know where your blocks are going to occur. Uh, I mean, you know where. I mean, you just know everything inside out when you've been in offense for two or three years. Uh, that, but I think the reason I'm not too concerned about Kentucky is because as terrible as our offense has been for the past two years, it can't get any worse. We got to change. So that also brings you new hope. I was I was on that uh, Elliott Uslak team in '96, where I mean the offense wasn't a bad offense. We didn't have Rashawn Salam, Mo Williams. 
uh, Mike Westbrook, Cordell Stewart, which, you know, you ran the same thing in Colorado. We didn't have those guys. And after Mo Williams left, it's hard to run Mo left, Mo right, Mo up the middle if you don't have Mo Williams. So it was it was tough for us to run that offense because they were expecting us to do the things that Mo was doing and Rashawn Salam was doing, Eric Bieniemy and those guys. So uh, and when Hal Mummy came in with a new offense, not everybody bought into it, especially Lee Corso, which he can, you know, do whatever he wants to do with the words he said about Hal Mummy's offense and us him coming to Kentucky, but. Uh, we proved him wrong, and, and it, but it did give us new hope. You know, as a whole, completely new offense. Tim was confident in it, and it, it just gave you a bunch of new new hope. So I think with the last offensive uh, regime under uh, Brown, things didn't work out. The things didn't work out under Dawson. I think that they, these guys get a chance to regroup, and so and if it doesn't work out this time, I, I, there's going to be I think there's going to be a, a bunch of movement. So, uh, but I, I I don't t- I don't take it as too bad of a a situation as I would normally because neither one of the other offenses, you know, left anything to be desired or, or was that successful where you're like, oh, how are we going to replace this or that? No, we, don't, we still really don't know what guys can do because the offense was was pretty inept for the for the past couple of years. Let me ask you this before we let you go. If Kentucky gets to a bowl game, you know, should it be Vandy? We're right there against Auburn, right there against Florida again, for the second year in a row. If Kentucky gets one of those and finishes 6-6 six and six instead of 5-7, and seven, is Shannon Dawson still the offensive coordinator if they go to a bowl game? Or will Mark Stoops still feel more comfortable making a move and getting a guy that he knows like Eddie Grant? Oh, no. I, I think – I think he and he and Dawson didn't have a good relationship, so I, I, I think there was going to have to be a change there. But the reason you're naming those games that you're naming, the reason we lose those games is because we couldn't move the ball. Like, absolutely couldn't. I'm not – I mean, I'm not sure if we could move the ball if we were allowed to cheat. And I'm not talk, I'm not – I don't mean to sound that negative against the, the team, but, I mean, I, I just think there were certain things that we could have done, especially against Auburn the last drive we're driving down the field. Juice Johnson, who's been having a great game, has, has opened the whole possession. So, for me, maybe the quarterback's not catching those reads. But you do have a contact with the, with the quarterback that, they, that the quarterback coach or the offense coordinator should. I, I've heard all the time, hey, well, look at Aunt B on this route or look at Craig on the backside of this route. I hear him say that all the time. And he was open the whole possession, and we, and we missed him three times. I'm talking about being, we went to him once and didn't go to him three other times. So, I think there was something that was missing there, and I don't think that relationship was going to work. It might have been harder to swallow if we made a bowl game, but I don't think that. Uh, but I don't think the relationship was going to work. Okay, okay. Well, man, we appreciate the knowledge. Appreciate you coming in, reflecting on what the Cavs title means to Northeast Ohio. That's that's fun to get that perspective, uh, because like I said. I'm not from there, and you are, and just just what it meant to everybody that you knew. It was cool, uh, and now they can just kind of let it soak up and soak in. The Indians are in first place, so you, I mean, come October, uh, there's reason to be excited about that as well. So I mean, good for the city of Cleveland, good for Northeast Ohio, man. Congratulations to everybody. Thanks, man. The city's still on fire, man. If you want to go up there and shake some hands and high five some people. <laughs> Might have to do that, man. Appreciate you hopping on with it, Anthony. It's always a blast, man.
All right, appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thank All you. All right. That's former UK running back Anthony White. And now we'll jump right into our third guest, Director of Communications for Kentucky Motor Speedway. Joined us a few weeks ago, and we had an awesome time with him. We welcome back Mr. Tim Bray. Tim, welcome to Cats Talk Wednesday with Vinny Hardy and Terry Brown. How are you doing this evening, sir? Oh, we're doing great, guys. How are you? Doing very good. Thanks for joining us. Hey, yes, no sir. problem How- at all. We got trucks on track. We're we're rolling here at uh, the Speedway and making things happen in uh, practice number two for the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series. Hey, it's, it's, we talked with you a few weeks ago, and, you know, this weekend was right around the corner, but now it's literally right around the corner. <laughs> the NASCAR world is in Sparta. How are you doing? I mean, it's got to be busy and exciting and everything all combined, right? It is. Um, this is what we live for. This is what we uh, prepare for all season long. And, you know, the track is uh, coming in nicely. And, uh, you know, they're kicking it. I mean, I'm just looking at the uh, practice times right now. And um, we're we're turning 183.306 mile an hour It's uh, in a truck. And that's getting it done. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Now, for those casual fans like myself, what are the the main differences between the cars and the trucks, and and how do they approach Kentucky Motor Speedway when the crews for the trucks and the crews for the cars come in? As far as they as far as setting up the cars and trucks. Well, the thing that is um, you know different uh, you know the trucks uh, just because of the body style you know it's an F one fifty you know it's a Toyota it's a Chevrolet Silverado and you know, it cuts through the air a whole lot different. Uh, the aerodynamics is so much different than if it's, uh, you know, in the Xfinity series, you got a Mustang out there. Uh, and in the, you know, the uh, Sprint Cup series, you've got a Fusion uh, for Ford and, you know, the Toyota Camry. And, you know, and that that's all different uh, from uh, truck to truck and car to car. So, you know, it really makes a difference. Uh, and uh, I'm impressed by what uh, you know these these trucks can do. I mean, my, they they kind of remind me of an old uh, you know cup car you know from years gone by, but um, you know they're aerodynamically different and they just uh, they drive so differently than let's say an Xfinity car or a Sprint Cup car. So, um, but still. Um, they're getting, you know, some great speeds out of them, and and they flat out go. They just there's there's no let up in the trucks, um, and you know, it's 225 miles, 150 some laps, 150 laps. So it's a uh, um, it's a great show because uh, it's not a long race, so they got to get out there, and you know, it's almost like a sprint. Wow. And so uh, the new turns now, everything, all the changes are about mm-hmm. to, to get the first real test uh, with the renovation and everything. Like you said, turn one and turn two, you were explaining to us right. last time. Now it's, it's time for all that to shine under real mm-hmm. race circumstances, isn't it? Yeah, you're right on that. And, um, you know, the early returns are very positive. 
uh, tracks coming in. Uh, we've laid so much uh, um, new rubber down, uh, tried a lot of different things to prepare for um, getting these guys out here because you want to widen out the groove so there's plenty of rubber on the track so that these cars can go side by side and really put on the show uh, and trucks for that matter uh, that the cars or that the fans want. So, um, you know, that's what's happening now. I mean, we've turned uh, about, well, the, some of the trucks have turned 60 plus laps. I see another 57 laps. So, you know, they're out there cranking it. And in this practice session, it's a little over two hours. So um, they're, you know, really getting it done. Um, and we want the trucks out and then Xfinity and Cup will be with them tomorrow. And, you know, the more rubber is laid down, the better the show's going to be. It's talking with Tim Bray, Director of Communications for Kentucky Motor Speedway. Uh, I've noticed where, where Tony Stewart won a race and ended his drought and now right. in the state. Were you surprised? Did you think that he would eventually, you know, break through? Was he kind of due, or was this just kind of out of the blue? Well, he was grumbly all weekend out there, and usually when uh, Tony gets to that point and he's kind of grumbling about things and unhappy and things like that, that's when he drives pretty well. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he made a classic Tony Stewart move. You know, smoke got up and under Denny Hamlin, and, uh, you know, the next thing you know, he's in the lead, and, and he uh, passes on the last turn out there at Sonoma, and he's a great road racer. I mean, he, he flat out gets it done, and, you know, he's he's the active leader of road racing racers um, in NASCAR. So, you know, you got to believe in Tony Stewart, and we all do, and this will be his 600 start uh, here come Saturday night, and uh, he's, he's, he's on the move. I mean, the guy's got, uh, you know, great – up and he understands how to race against these guys and uh, you know I I wouldn't put it past him I mean look what Jeff Gordon did last year I mean Jeff was right there he made the chase and you know it was a very big factor and uh, I you know Tony's in the chase as long as he stays in the top 30 and so I think he's got a real eye on the prize on his last year and you know he wants to win that championship and now he's in and um, now the next thing you got to do is just be consistent and stay in the top 30 and, and win some more races. And, you know, this is right in his backyard. I mean, you know, Cincinnati and, and Louisville uh, are his people. And, you know, he's from Indiana. And uh, I I got to believe that uh, Tony's got uh, every chance in the world here come Saturday night. So if, if he kind of, got on a run and got some momentum through the remainder of the summer, wouldn't surprise you in the least. Huh? No, and, and the thing about Tony, you know, he drives the best in the summertime. I mean, you, know, you look at his record, I mean, this is his time of the year. So, uh, yeah, I think he's got all the opportunity in the world. And this is the last mile-and-a-half track uh, before the, the chase, and there's five mile-and-a-halves in the chase. So, you know, if it's Tony or it's anybody else, uh, you want to do well here, um, and then you take that, uh, you know, good finish, whether it's a win or a good, you know, top ten maybe, something like that, and you take that to the chase and know what you've got underneath you and know you how to, how to drive these uh, intermediate tracks. So, um, you know, this is a critical time for these guys as, uh, you know, we're getting close to 
of the last 10 races of the year, which is the chase format uh, in NASCAR. Talking with Tim Bray, director of communications for Kentucky Motor Speedway. It all goes down this weekend at the track. You mentioned that, you know, uh, Kentucky is kind of in the backyard for Tony Stewart, uh, Cincinnati, Louisville area right there with him being, you know, just a hop and jump up the road in Indiana. Is there any other drivers that may consider Kentucky a home track? Uh-oh. Well, you you got Ben Rhodes out of Louisville, and he's uh, tenth of points in the Truck Series. And this young man is, um, you know, on the rise, and he had a third and a second the last two times out in the, in the Truck Series. So he hasn't won yet, but uh, he was a K and N champion and uh, won five times in that series for NASCAR. And you know, you look at uh, what he's done so far; he's just getting better and better as he um, understands uh, what. Uh, it takes to win and what it takes to, to compete uh, in the truck series. So, you know, he's been pretty good here today. He's at the turn of about 35 laps uh, in the in the practice sessions going on right now, and he's over 180 miles an hour. So, you know, he's going to be right there, and uh, I'm sure he's got a good truck, and, and uh, you know, this is his home. Uh, he said on many occasions that he wants to win on his home track at now, wouldn't that be something to get your first win um, of your uh, NASCAR KB World Truck Series uh, uh, career and one of the three national series for NASCAR uh, on your home track in Kentucky? And uh, that's his goal. And, and uh, when I talk about young, uh, he's just a year out of high school. <laughs> so he's got a career ahead of him. It seems like these guys are getting better and better. At a younger age, isn't it kind of a, a oh, trend yeah. of that? Yeah, I mean, William Byron's got three wins in the truck series, and I know we're talking trucks a lot here, but the guy just graduated from high school about a month ago, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, there's another case in point, you know, that you know, here's a guy that uh, has got some, uh, oodles and oodles of talent. And what is really exciting is you uh, can come to Kentucky Speedway and see these young guys – uh, in the Truck Series Thursday night, see the Xfinity Series Friday night, and then, you know, the guys that run on Saturday nights and Sunday afternoons on Sunday or Saturday night here in the Quaker State 400 presented by Advanced Auto Parts. So you get the whole gamut back to back to back um, here at the Speedway uh, this um, this week, and um, that's a real good find. I mean, if you are really a diehard in this sport, my goodness, what an opportunity for you. And then if you're just a guy that – you know, as a casual fan, you get to, you know, see and hear some of the real stars and the upcoming stars uh, of this sport all in one weekend. And how can still time to get tickets? How can many, everybody uh, right. do that to get themselves yeah. a ticket? Yeah, tickets, yeah, tickets are still remaining for all three events. Uh, you can also come camp, too. I mean, if you're anywhere in the Commonwealth or, you know, within three to 500 miles, uh, extend your holiday weekend and come camp with us. And uh, there's lots of camp spots uh, available, whether it's in the infield or, you know, outside on our property. And uh, in addition to that, you know, tickets and campsites can be uh, purchased online at KentuckySpeedway.com. You can uh, show up at the main gate or at the ticket office uh, here on property and uh, certainly get your tickets that way. Or you can call our toll or our phone number, uh, in our sales office, 
in our ticketing office, and that's 859-578-2300. It's 859-578-2300, and uh, our customer service reps will be more than happy to, to walk you through the process. Deal, good deal. There's plenty of fun to be had, plenty of fun racing to watch this weekend as you know, the, the NASCAR world focuses on our home state of Kentucky. So, hey, uh, like you said, it's, it's what you live for, and now the time is here. That is for sure, and uh, we look forward to, uh, you know, hosting these guys every year, and it's uh, it's great to have um, them here uh, this weekend. And weather's going to be good, and uh, excited to uh, see what they could do on this uh, um, uh, reconfigured and resurfaced racetrack. And Tim, before I let you go, I know last time we had you on, you you also talked about being, you know, football fan and basketball fan as well, and that's kind of your background before you moved into NASCAR. What is your thoughts on on all the big crazy moves and crazy monopoly money going on with with the NBA trade <laughs> going on right now? <laughs> it is crazy to sit back and watch this thing, and uh, I just can't see are they printing money somewhere, and I want some of it. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's just an, an unbelievable time for for the NBA, and uh, you know, uh, I, I just don't know where it's all coming from. But uh, certainly, you know, there have been some guys that paid their dues. Uh, Kevin Durant certainly has, um, and uh, you know, it's just the way of um, you know the the pro world and how uh, the free agency has changed uh, you know the landscape so dramatically. Uh, I think the sport, and honestly, I think the the game seems to be getting better um, because no longer do you have to be, you know, seven two and and play the post to you know to one make any money and two uh, score thirty a game. Um, you know, now it's a it's a quick game, and I think some of the best passers in 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 the in all of basketball are in the NBA. I mean, I really like this. Um, how the Warriors play, um, and I think they play quick. And yeah, I don't think you have to be knocking down threes all the time, but certainly um, that helps the inside game a lot. And uh, I think Kevin Durant's going to really work uh, in, in that um, framework. He may not be scoring thirty a game, but uh, I think he's going to have a lot of fun. And you know, that's what it's all about. You know, let's have fun with the game. And um, uh, you know, today's you know, 16, 15, 14-year-old athletes looking up to these guys, and uh, um, they want to be like them. And I just hope that uh, the game uh, flourishes and it's competitive, and I think that it has a chance to be that way. I know the college game is so much better now. I mean, it's it's up and down, and you have to play defense, and um, there's a lot of game within the game, and uh, that's what I, I really appreciate. And, you know, the, the better athletes do shine. And I think there's um, a lot to be said for that. So, And there's tremendous teachers in the game, too. Um, I was worried about that at one point. There's um, there's tremendous teachers in the game, whether it's uh, on the junior high level or the pro level, everywhere in between. And uh, it's it's gotten better, and that's uh, that's kind of my take on it. Cool, cool, cool. And switching to football, did you say you were a big? You have more of a Big Ten preference when it comes to college football? Is that 
Uh, well, I'm kind of in the in, in the Big Ten world, yeah, in, in okay. the American Conference, which I think is one of the underrated uh, college conferences in America. I mean, um, there's a, a lot of parity in the league, and you know, every night out, it's it's so good, and uh, they play that uh, crazy November schedule, weeknight games, and you know, uh, I'm really impressed by you know the way the development has been in that league, and. So I pay a lot of attention to it. Uh, pay a lot of attention to Big Ten football uh, as well, and uh, you know, and uh, of course in the Southeastern Conference uh, is in two. And, and now that uh, uh, we're seeing a lot more ACC football too, but uh, uh, it's it's really impressive, um, uh, you know, just to see uh, the levels of major college football. Yeah, you you got the you know the the power five conferences, but there's so much opportunity at, uh, you know, even at the mid-American conference level and, you know, all those guys, you know, they are, they are so tied into the bowl games and everything. And, you know, that's what it's all about. You want to play and you want to play for good teams and you want to be competitive and you want to win your share of football games. And, uh, it's all about that. And so, uh, you know, I see it, uh, on every level, but, um, personally, I'm, I'm more, uh, into the Big Ten and the Midwest leagues, um, but uh, I pay attention to it. Do you think that Michigan and Ohio State will finally be back this year? Jim Harbaugh is coming, and he's trying to get it <laughs> rolling. Do you think it's he started up? Will now, be back? Yeah. Oh, I think it's gotten better and better, and I don't think. Uh, yeah, there's any question that Jim Harbaugh has helped out of a lot. And, you know, I think that Urban uh, understands that and that they got to reload a little bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, that OSU and Michigan rivalry um, is second to none. I mean, if you have never, ever seen or been a part of that, you just got to do it one time if it's in your bucket list. Just one time, either in Ann Arbor or at the Big House. I mean, one of the two places – yeah, the horseshoe. Um, it's it's just amazing how that rivalry has developed over the years, and and now that Jim Harbaugh is in in Ann Arbor, um, that uh, will add to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. That was like you know must watch TV. Uh, even <laughs> if you weren't a Big Ten fan, you you always tuned in for Ohio State Michigan because it was. It was back and forth, and they usually were both ranked in the top ten. And it's always a great game. It'll be back in that area. You watch. I mean, and Ohio State is is they they have always seem to to find the right combinations as well. And and Urban's done a great job there, no question. You know, the record speaks for itself. Absolutely, Tim. We really really appreciate you coming on with us again. Enjoyed your time with us a few weeks ago. Thanks for coming on the week of the race. And, and continue to drop knowledge on us, and we're excited and yeah. the race and appreciate everything you've done and coming on our show as well. Uh, no problem. Uh, you know, dial us up on uh, on online at KentuckySpeedway.com, and all the information will be on there, and and um, you know, pictures and results and video, and it, uh, it's a one-stop shop, and you can buy tickets on there as well. We look forward to the next time we're on with you guys. You have a great night. All right. Thank you. You do the same. Thank you, Tim. Take care.
Tim Brake, Director of Communications for Kentucky Motor Speedway. Um, <clears throat> three guests up, all of them being great. Uh, I think our fourth guest might be on the line, Tim Biggs. We'll take a quick break and see if that is him. Uh, if so, he was a former athletic trainer for UK, so it's, it's going to be cool to get well from the way he saw it, you know, having to be ready for, you know, injuries and, and things of that nature. We'll take just a quick, quick break, uh, and then we'll be right back on the other side with that, as well as more NBA French talk. Uh, TB is just cheering that Timothy Mazdaskov acquisition, so we'll get to that and more. You've been listening to Cat Talk Wednesday, Benny Hardy and Terry Brown on the Brown and Hardy Radio Network on blogtalkradio.com. We'll be right back in just a couple minutes. Cats out Wednesday. Danny Hardy, Terry Brown. Got three guests in the books. Thanks to Will West, Tim Bray, Anthony White, all stopping by. Uh-oh. Enjoyed chatting with all of those gentlemen. We will see now if our fourth guest is on the line. There might be a call listening in, but we have a former okay, athletic trainer. For UK, uh, Tim Biggs. Tim, is that That's you on the me, line sir. right now? All yes, right. sir. I saw you holding for a while while we had our other guests on, but really appreciate you hopping on the show with us tonight, sir. How you doing? Doing great. Enjoy your show. I'm this is officially my first podcast broadcast in sports medicine, so hear it now. All, All right. right. Exciting stuff. So, uh, glad to, I saw you. Go ahead. Go ahead. I saw you. I was just well, going to tell you. I, I was going to tell you. I was just very honored to be on, up on your show. Oh, I'm glad yeah. to have you. Yeah, and I, I saw one of your tweets is what made me want to get you on the show. It was um, UK football and, and Warren Bryant uh, when Warren just 
recently went into the Kentucky Pro Football Hall of Fame, and you're like talking about your time as a trainer. Uh, I think you mentioned my big warm sweet words. And you, you know, you had oh. of course help him as a trainer. So I was like, well, I just want to see if I can get this gentleman on the show because never had a trainer on the show just to get us, you know, a glimpse of UK football from that perspective. So that's that's what made me want to try to get on the show. That's great. Yeah, I think uh, well, with Warren Bryant, uh, you know, I was a freshman there at the time. I was a student trainer, and uh, Warren Bryant was just one huge of a football player. I mean, he reminds me like Sasquatch or something, you know. I mean, it's just a huge hunk of a player. And uh, I was a young young man at the time, and and uh, quite intimidated by by his size and also by his talent. But I think what's most important was he—he he, he was a very kind gentleman, and uh, me being an athletic trainer, I think I went through about four rolls of tape just on one ankle. <laughs> <laughs> now what? I mean, what years were yeah, you at UK? What years were you there? I, I was—I was there at UK under Frank Hurst before I went on to Emerald, Texas, to become a paramedic. Okay, so early seventies. Yes, sir. Part of the Peach okay. Bowl crew. Okay. And how is it different now compared to when when you were a trainer? I know you probably watch games and, and probably observe the trainers more than the casual fan would. How does it change? Yeah. I tell you what, the profession is literally the profession has exploded. And uh, back then, whenever I served under uh, – uh, I've served under some great athletic trainers. Uh, right at the very beginning, a gentleman by the name of Roy Don Wilson, and, and everybody knows Walt McCombs and Al Green, uh, Mike Ritz, Russ Miller. These guys were Hall of Fame uh, athletic trainers, Tim Ewell and uh, Keith Webster. And from back then, I didn't think they even had cell phones back then. So uh, we were really, Al Green began to institute uh, the communication process of being able to communicate on the field and and how when we were at the Shively Sports Center, we would have uh, different groups. You know, you'd have your different uh, offensive groups, defensive groups, and have a trainer assigned to each group. And he would definitely uh, have uh, communication set up to where you could communicate uh, for assistance if you need to, but the sports medicine uh, program has just flat out exploded. It's no longer a profession of where you see a person run on the field with a water bottle. Uh, an athlete trainer now, it's definitely all about uh, prevention, and uh, it, it, it really, an, an athlete, a good athlete trainer communicating with the coach, it can uh, make or break you because uh, a simple uh, taping or stretching or protecting of an injury that can keep a player back on the field and keep him from being uh, sidelined. And, and uh, I can tell you, I can, I can tell you a bunch of uh, really good stories. Uh, we 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 had a real good team. You know, the Peach Bowl team was a very very good team, and uh, Art Steele, Lord have mercy, uh, that was another player that was just unbelievable but and you know Derek Ramsey the Ram we always called him uh, he he was an excellent player 
and uh, we're just uh, the the uh, the trainers all work together, and uh, the difference between then and now. Uh, there's so much more education involved. I mean, there's doctorate degrees that, that are required for you to become an athletic trainer. And uh, Jim Madalino and his crew, uh, I mean, the facilities are unbelievable. If, if anybody has ever not seen the facilities in the UK, it is just unbelievable how, how, how much expanded they've become and how more high-tech it's become. Uh, nutrition, uh, it's, there's a psychological component to the game. And uh, it is really, it's really become uh, more scientific and more technical than it ever was. What was it like, like uh, game week during the season? You know, I guess you have to, you have to go to class and be at practice and all that. How did you juggle yeah. all of that? Those responsibilities. Well, it was hard, and you, especially, I mean, during two a days, we call them two a days or three a days. You know, you had your kicking game at nighttime, but uh, you had to be there bright and early in the morning, and it was an all-day affair. I mean, you literally spent your time there in the training room, and you had to prepare. I mean, there was a. I mean, when you start off as a student trainer, uh, there's a lot of whirlpools to clean, a lot of, a lot of dirty jobs that are there to be done. But nonetheless, those are jobs that needed to, to be done for uh, for the athletes to receive whirlpool treatments or any kind of therapeutic modalities that were needed. And uh, in preparation for the game, you have to have uh, all the equipment there. You have to have uh, your medical equipment. You had, to do through, you had to go through many drills of emergency drills of when an athlete's down. Who does what? Because that's one thing you don't want to have is total chaos when a player goes down. You've got to have your, your systems in place and, and we would definitely review those systems. Everybody has a role. I'm sure Jim Mandolino has that very same program where when an athlete gets hurt or everybody has a certain role and there's a signal that's given for a certain piece of equipment and uh, it's just a, it's a really a team effort. There's a lot of communication that goes on behind the scenes. I've always thought that uh, athletic trainers and managers were the unsung heroes of the program because you never really hear or know what an athletic trainer does. And you just assume that an athletic trainer, all they do is tape an ankle. Well, there's more to it than that. And we're talking with Tim Biggs, former UK athletic trainer um, for UK football. You mentioned something just then uh, a few minutes ago, cleaning out the whirlpool. Yeah, that's, that's a little detail that, had to be done and and done well and maintained. I didn't even think about that. And you, I mean, yeah. like you said, there's just so much more that we don't even think about that goes into your day-to-day routine as a trainer. That's exactly right. I mean, and you uh, <clears throat> you had to make sure that everything was clean. I mean, because you, I mean, and you had a lot of players that required to have uh, ice baths and not just ice baths, but uh, whirlpool baths and and. Uh, there's just uh, you have to constantly restock shelves. There's there's uh, packaging that goes on, and things are in place on the sidelines, uh, even in the, on the practice field and during game time that are there prior to any of the players showing up. So I mean everything has to be in place before they arrive on the field. So the job begins before the players are even on the field. And this is for 
for practice and home games. Did you travel and do the, uh, do the same thing on the road as well? Were you, did all the same trainers travel that did the home games? Not all trainers did, but they were we they rotated that so everybody had an experience to be able to travel. And uh, I know whenever you asked me to get on the show, I one of the one of the things that I remember <laughs> we were traveling to Indiana, and this is probably and, and I'm it's just kind of fuzzy, but I remember this. We were going to Indiana, and uh, and we traveled by bus then, and we were traveling to Indiana to an away game. And there was a drunk driver going the wrong way, and of course we were traveled by a police escort. And one of the state troopers had to jump in front of the bus to head off this collision. And there was actually a like a semi collision. The buses weren't involved because they protected the players, but that was kind of a, an event that, that I won't forget because it was kind of scary at the moment. Oh, I say so. Oh. That is nothing to mess with at all. No. And, you know, that's never, that's never anything. Yeah, somebody coming at you on the wrong side of the road, that's never, that's never a good feeling, no matter how old you are or what you're riding in or where you are, you know. And I remember, I remember the first person off the bus whenever that happened was Al Green, you know. Once again, you know, he's an athlete trainer, he's an EMT, and so, the athletic trainer is the caretaker of your team. This this analogy it just hit me. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. You talked about when when players go down uh, to injury, you got to kind of be prepared, no doubt, for any type of situation, any type of injury. And you said you want to avoid chaos. That made me think of like a NASCAR pit crew. Everybody's got something that they have to do to make that pit stop go smoothly. Was it kind of like that where you had to coordinate who would do what, you know, yes. in, in, every, in the injury situation? Yes, sir. Everybody had – everybody, if you'll notice, like uh, usually when the head trainer, Jim Madalino, if he's on the field, you'll notice that there's always someone that stays by him constantly and usually when a, per, a player goes down, there's either two or three people that will go out, but there's also one that will stay halfway in the, on the field. They won't go all the way to the person. That way they can communicate by hand signals whether the person needs a golf cart, whether the person needs um, a splint kit or any other kind of emergency situation. And, of course, you know, always the team positions are always there. But uh, it's a coordinated event. There's more to it. There's a lot of planning that goes on behind the scenes than anybody would ever imagine. Yeah, and you you've enlightened us a whole lot just this evening. Is there what is the, I guess would you say? I don't know the, the scariest situation or the the most difficult situation you've ever had to face during a game uh, with a player being injured. I don't, I don't guess we want to get too gruesome, but what what kind of stands no. out? Well, obviously you've got your fractures and dislocations, and of course that looks kind of grotesque and everything. But I think the most the the most important thing is to make sure that you know the the, the player is not in any kind of respiratory or cardiac distress, and that's those are very 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 rare. And, and as a football player, I've, I've never had you know never had to assess anything like that. Uh, UK, but uh, I know for a fact that you know every every uh, every trainer's 
CPR certified, and 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 many of them are EMTs, and maybe many of them are paramedics. And that's what I chose to do when I left UK was to become a paramedic. But uh, working with the athletes, uh, you know, the players they they become accustomed to to each trainer, and every every trainer uh, you know gets used to the players. They get confidence with the trainer, and you know they're kind of you kind of, they're kind of putting their their ankle their limb in your hands whenever you go on the field. So that it seems to me that uh, the, there needs to be more attention to sports medicine and athletic trainers behind the scenes because the head coach he he's kind of dependent on good communication with the trainer to let him know what player may be hurt during game time and and not all injuries are debilitating which with they may not be able to play that quarter or that half and i think another thing you made me think of one of the things that's changed is the concussion uh there's been so much more studies and more attention drawn to uh people that's had concussions whereas back then uh of course we would hold players out that had neurological signs that would show a possible concussion but Definitely, with the new new uh, education that's out there, there has been uh, a lot more prevalence of watching out for uh, concussions, and I think that's a good thing. Definitely, definitely. Uh, one final question, Tim: When you're coming out of high school and, and deciding that you're going to go to UK, in order to become a trainer, did you have to speak with the coaching staff or? How, did you have to apply, yeah. or, or how did that work? I got recruited by uh, Roy Don Wilson. He, I kind of, went, I went to like a little Kramer sports medicine camp from Lafayette High School, and from there I went to UK. And basically, uh, they kind of guided me as to uh, what what classes I needed to take, what courses, and of course, headed that direction in Allied Health, and I've been doing Allied Health ever since. And uh, I, I owe all my uh, education and training to all the good trainers that I just mentioned in, and uh, UK because I think they have the, one of the best sports medicine programs out there. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and just shed some light on it from your perspective. So many little details from from game week, in season, home game, road game, when a player is injured that, you know, I said we just don't even give it a thought. But really appreciate you coming on, Tim, and and giving us your perspective on what it was like to be a U.K. football athletic trainer. I appreciate being here, and and, uh, appreciate you all. God bless you all. Thank you very Um, much, Tim. And thank you for listening, and have a good evening, Tim. All right, you too. Thank you so much. All right. That was Tim Biggs former U.K. football athletic trainer, uh, our fourth guest tonight that we had on the show, and each of them brought it, and it was a fun chat with each one of them and learning from each and every guest. It was really cool. We appreciate all of them coming on. Will West, Anthony White, Tim Bray, and Tim B. And I don't think people saying what an operation it is for big-time athletics. Uh, it's it's more than just you know the twelve guys 
uh, on the basketball team or the however many on the football team or whatever. It takes, uh, I, you know, I learned this up, up close and personal during my time in Lexington with the athletic trainers. That's a team in and of itself. Everybody's got a role to play, and, and they've got to be ready beforehand and after the games, during the games. You know, we all gasp, you know, when our favorite player, you know, looks like he turns an ankle or, or whatnot. And, uh, you know, that's when those guys go to work. Those guys and gals uh, go to work to get, get those players back to where they need to be. Uh, you know, uh, people our age remember – uh, Jeff Shepard twisted his ankle pretty bad in the SEC tournament in 1998 and went through pretty extensive work with the training staff to get him ready to be most outstanding player. So those uh, folks play a huge role in the success of your team uh, on the field. Uh, you know, the, those trainers, they, they are what keeps the folks upright. So definitely tip your hat to those guys. Yeah. Yeah, and and just a little thing, like you just mentioned, the whirlpool having to be clean. I never give that thought. We see players uh, or hear about them having to get treatments and all this. You know, the Cam Newton had a commercial, and he's in the whirlpool. I forget what he's endorsing. Don't even think about it. I mean, it's got to be done, and we know what happens if something like that goes undone for any amount of time, and we can't have that, and you need to make so there's so many things that don't even pop up in the radar unless you're a trainer or a player or a coach or somebody that's really involved uh, with the athletic programs. Right. Uh, that's just one of those behind-the-scenes things that people really don't uh, think about. Uh, but they're just as important. It, it really is a team effort. It's more than just those players that you see. It, it's a, it takes a whole lot of folks to keep these top-flight programs top-flight. Definitely, definitely. I appreciate Tim coming on and uh, sharing his perspective. It was just as informative as I, I thought it would be. we got about 15 minutes left in the show, 17 minutes roughly. Uh, like I mentioned, Mozgov and Lou Alting, I know that you were, you know, jumping for joy. Um, that was exactly who you wanted in free agency, I'm sure, right? Well, here's here's the thing. Um, I'm convinced in the wake of uh, Kevin Durant's move to Golden State, uh, Oklahoma City has got to do something uh, with Russell Westbrook. Russ, come back to L.A. where you played your college ball. This is you're, – you're the fashion plate of the NBA. Come back and get it done. Uh, you know, I, I, think, the, I think the Lakers, I, I, although I don't fully agree with, you know, the Mozgov deal and Ding, I think, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, but I think they can still make some moves with the way the salary cap is going to jump this year, I think in a couple more years. Year after next, I think there's another big bump based on TV money. I think the Lakers can make some noise. They've got some really good young pieces. Of course, I'm high on Randall. I'm high on Ingram. I'm high on D'Angelo Russell. Uh, I, I think they can 
turn in to be solid players, which I think if you give a player like a Westbrook, like, uh, you know, I don't know who else might become a free agent, but you can, you can be certainly be attractive uh, in the free agent market. It's still LA. Uh, and again, I'm probably looking through this with my purple and gold glasses, but I think they can turn this thing around uh, just with the way the landscape and the, and the NBA is playing, is, is changing. Yeah, and the I mean it's still Lou Bust is, is making it a little bit harder to, to get the big names like you would have thought maybe. I mean it's still L.A. Uh, Russ has ties to L.A., but you know L.A. used to be the spot. Is it it's still it's, you know players a little bit hesitant of the, the upper management there? I think that's part of it, and then you have a situation which I thought was an interesting quote from um, DeMar DeRozan about L.A. You know, if you want to make your mark as a Laker, you've got to put some banners up there. I mean, that's that's the, um, the standard. The same way in Boston, if you really want to be in that pantheon, it's all about putting that laundry in the rafters. And I think that's a little bit of a thing, too, uh, you know, nobody wants to be the guy to follow up the guy. And if you are the next superstar in L.A., obviously you're going to be playing in Kobe Bryant's shadow. And I think that might be a little bit of a turnoff. But if I'm in the Lakers front office, my selling point is this is what we do in L.A. This is what we do. You know, Shaq and Kobe, before that, you know, Magic and Kareem, before that, you know, you, you can go through the history and say you can be the next big superstar. I, I keep hearing that perhaps uh, DeMarcus Cousins might end up in L.A., however that works out. That would be fantastic for all kinds of reasons uh, for me. But I, I honestly, I think the Lakers are on the right track, I would not necessarily say there'll be a playoff team next year. I think that is a stretch, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with where they are with the with the draft and with uh, free agency so far. Oh, that's that is good. Um, that's more than I can say because I wasn't thrilled with the hire of Mike D'Antoni. Um, you know, we, I still think, you know, caught lightning in a bottle with Phoenix. You had some great players, Steve Nash, Hall of Famer, a young Stoudemire, and we know how good Sean Marion was for so long. Um, but, you know, then Tony hasn't really done much since then, and, and he's kind of still gotten some jobs after what he did in Phoenix. Uh, I just don't see it blending well, meshing well, him in Houston. And then they go out and get Eric Gordon, who, I mean, was a good player at Indiana, but injury-prone is being very nice when you talk about his time in the NBA. He's played in more than 70 games, only once in his career, been in the league since 08. Uh, You know, 40 games, 50 games, one year, nine games. And 
he just got a pretty fat contract in four years. So I'm talking about got to go moments from for for players, you know, or coaches that that's got to go or got to get fired. This is it's got to stay healthy time for Eric Gordon. It's been been got to stay healthy time. Uh, so given his track record, I'm not really enthused about that. Um, not really seeing who's going to play any kind of defense. I see where you can sign the uh, Nay to a contract today. Uh, you know, Dwight Howard moved on to Atlanta. Uh, they drafted Anawaku out of Louisville. Uh, Kyle Wilcher signed the contract. I, uh, it's just <laughs> they're going to have to show me. Like Kentucky football, but we, we got to see it. Mike D'Antoni going to have to show me. That's where I'm at with my Rockets. Well, Mike, here's the thing. His his offense, exactly, he caught it lightning in a bottle. And when you've got a Steve Nash, you can do things that, you know, your your average run-of-the-mill point guard couldn't do or a point guard like Steve Nash. Would the Showtime Lakers have been the Showtime Lakers if they had Isaiah Thomas as a point guard? I, I don't think so. So what he had in Phoenix was the perfect mix of his philosophy and players that could execute it. You've got Steve Nash, and you've got, like you said, Sean Marion, uh, Amari Stoudemire, remember Joe Johnson, and, um, oh, Brandy's boyfriend. It'll come to me. Oh, uh, it'll come to me. Uh, but you've got those guys just suited to run. You know, if you could pick your squad – you know, that's who you have to to run it. I think that you know, it is lightning in the bottle. I wasn't a big fan when D'Antoni uh, went to the Lakers. Uh, I just don't know if you're able to uh, recreate that. Um, with the Durant signing, here, here's, here's my two cents on it. I don't really have a problem with it. We We get – caught up in who's got rings, who doesn't have rings. So when guys start to do stuff to get rings, we want to blast them for it and and talk about, uh, you know, for whatever reason it's not organic because the team didn't draft them or trade or all this kind of stuff. And I've said on Twitter, and I'll say it here, when it comes to professional sports, this is the only part of of America where we root for management, where we root for the bosses. When the players decide to move and come together, there's an issue. But if the play, if the, if the uh, teams trade you or cut you or whatnot, that's viewed a whole lot differently. And I, I don't know where that disconnect is. Uh, I'm not going to call Kevin Durant soft. Uh, because the spotlight is going to be so bright on Golden State. We saw what they did without him, eliminating him from the playoffs, getting to game seven this year, winning a championship the year before. Anything short of a championship is a monumental failure on everybody's part. But I think Kevin Durant is going to have the biggest bullseye on him. You know, like Will said, you know, Durant has a lot of a goodwill, uh, more goodwill than LeBron has had. But if – and I don't think people are expecting the Warriors to, to, to get 74 wins next year. I don't think that is the standard. 
at least I hope that that wouldn't be for me. That's I think a little ridiculous. But not winning a cha- this is a team that is, is literally championship or bust, and that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. It's like when LeBron went back to Cleveland. You know, he had an opportunity to stay in Miami, go some other places, but going back to Cleveland with that, the weight of the state on your shoulders, that's asking for a lot. And I think Durant is in that situation right now. And I wish him the best, but sometimes those super teams don't always work. Uh, I was reminded of the 3 4 Lakers and how excited I was. It was Shaq and Kobe. And then you bring in Gary Payton and Carl Malone, and you think, even with Carl Malone and, and Payton being a little bit older, you think, wow, this is going to be a good team. And they started out hot, cooled off a little bit, and end up, you know, falling in the, the finals in five games. But it, it's a, you, you just can't put a great player on a great team and just expect automatic greatness. That's not the way basketball works. It's going to take the Warriors some time to figure out their roles. I, I think that's yep. going to be the biggest challenge for Steve Kerr is, is juggling that lineup. And I don't think it's a matter of keeping people happy because I think Clay and Steph and KD are two very unselfish uh, players that can play off the ball and, and do things. But, okay, you, you've got to figure out how to not step on each other's toes. You know, uh, when when Clay and Steph do that pick and roll, how does Durant move? Where does he fade? You know, on the double team, it, it, there's a lot that goes into it that they're going to have to work through over 82 games to figure out how to get it done in the playoffs. Yeah, and and like you said, LeBron went to Miami talking about not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, and. And then, you know, Dirk got them in six games in, in their first trip to the finals. And, you know, nobody really saw it coming. Like you said, it, it's going to take a minute. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, even in college, you know, sometimes Kentucky's freshmen come out, you know, blazing. Sometimes it takes a little while for them to come together in jail. Uh, we'll see what happens this year with this group. Maybe it'll be somewhere in the middle. Maybe they'll, you know, come out on fire. It just takes a little bit, you know, no matter how good you are. Same thing with these Olympic teams. You just throw them all together, you think, okay, go destroy every other country. But it just takes a minute to to get everybody in sync. Yeah, it, it, and as Kentucky fans, like you point out, we should know that roster construction is, is not a simple – take the best point guard, take the best shooting guard, take the – that's not how things work. Now, I give the Warriors a little bit of a benefit because of the way the team is already set up, and these guys, they move the ball, the uh, their bench is just phenomenal. But it's still going to take a little bit of time to, to put, even as talented as Kevin Durant is, uh, it's going to take some time to to fit in. I think that's that's part of it. Also, we get so hung up on people's legacy, and you heard that a lot with leg with with Duran, his his legacy. How's that going to be? And and you know, 
we used to worry about people's legacy as they were close to retirement or when they were getting announced for a Hall of Fame. That's when we talked about legacy. Now we're talking about it in real time, and it's a fallacy. It, 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 you have to let these kinds yeah. of things breathe. If the if the Warriors go and win three or four straight championships, okay. If they don't win any more championships, but you have to wait and see. You, you can't just start saying, oh, he took a hit for this. Because every great player, if you look at their resume and you look at it early on, they weren't great from the get-go. I mean, yeah, Magic won a championship as a rookie. But, you know, he got that label as a coach killer and, and had that kind of baggage. I'm old enough to remember people saying that Michael Jordan would never win a championship. <laughs> I mean, it, it, am I lying? His first five or six years, all flash will never win a title. I, I, I heard right. that. People talk about uh-huh. that. So we don't know how this is. We looked at LeBron's career, his, his first run in Cleveland, and you think, man, is, is he ever going to – you know, and he had some really good teams in Cleveland before he left the first time. Is he ever going to get over that hump? And you, and you look over – you look at that, and then you look at that first year in Miami, and you think, oh, man, Le, LeBron's never going to get it together. And then here we are in 2016, and you see – he ends the last three games of the finals with some of the best performances we have ever seen. Give these things time to breathe. You know, we, we, don't, we don't know how the story ends. And, and judging a player off an off, uh, off-season move or, or one game, I think that's unfair. And you can really look foolish when you, when you do that. Yeah. Anything that goes past eight will be available on the podcast, blogtalkradio.com slash cat talk. Uh, we'll have it all up right after the show's over with. Uh and I'm I'm one, I just I do get tired of the the legacy talk because it just happens so quick, like you said, in real time. And it that shouldn't be the case and it shouldn't be judged that that quickly. So uh, such in such a knee jerk way, and that's the way it's been for a while now. Uh, and legacies change, and we keep hearing the word legacy. LeBron's legacy was already set before this win, and then it's had it's been readjusted since they came back and beat Golden State. But everybody already pretty much had it pegged assuming they lost to the Warriors. It was already going a certain way. Losing to the Warriors this year would have just cemented that even more. And, oh, we got to do a 180 on his legacy now because he came down, overcame a 3-1 deficit, and won a title for his hometown for the first time in 50 years. And Cleveland's won one. So, I mean, it's, it, it can't be a moving target when you talk about that. Let a person retire well, again. You, you have to look at their – uh, totality, and, th- and that's the thing is we've become so focused on rings being the the measure of of greatness, which you know I I understand to some extent, but rings aren't the only thing. Um, and what and, and that's kind of the legacy of Jordan going six for six in the finals. 
where you have to say, okay, is, is that realistic to happen again? Probably not, but if LeBron adds two more, you, you have to start putting him in that kind of discussion, I think. That's just me uh, personally, uh, obviously. But basketball and just sports in general, if it was your individual sports, absolutely, you can you can rank them. You can look at you know what Tiger Woods did compared to Jack Nicholas, compared to all the Palmer. You can do that. But team sports, especially teams of a different era where there wasn't free agency and, and things were different. It, it's just hard to uh, to really equate all this and come out with okay, this guy's better than this guy. You just it's such it's so subjective, and you don't know where these guys playing right now. You don't know where their careers are going to end. You you just don't. Yeah, yeah. So and then so yeah, just but this say social media and everything. Everything is so quick, so reactionary. The wait-and-see approach is kind of a thing of the past. We let it all play out and then summarize it. That's that's kind of a thing of the past. You know, uh, tweet something, you know, throw out something on the blog real fast, and, and then, like you say, you might have to do a 180 on it after a seven-game series is over. It completely changes the perception of it. it yeah, and, and even... Uh, players that we don't really think about. I mean, Kobe, I remember after, you know, he hastened Shaq's departure uh, from L.A., you know, he, and then with running off Phil the first time, I mean, (laughs) I know what people said about, I mean, honestly. So then, you know, he kind of stays the course in L.A., and, you know, know, Phil comes back and he gets a couple more titles, and, and it's a totally different narrative of just being forever known as Shaq's sidekick. You just, you, you don't know. Uh, you look at guys like Jerry West, who was 0 for 7 in the finals before finally yeah. winning and was MVP of a finals, which his team lost. Okay? Yeah. So you have to look at things in context and say, this guy was great, 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 great as a player. But he met a team that was great, 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 great. And even in that instance, he was so good, his team lost, but he was the best player on the floor. To me, that carries a lot of weight, even though if you look and you say, Jerry West was 1-7 in in finals, he gagged. Well, yet you you can't (laughs) just look at just the hardcore numbers about that. for my money, one of the best quarterbacks I have ever seen is Dan Marino, who only got to the one Super Bowl. But if you're going down a list, how many guys do you rank ahead of him? So the the, the, the ring thing, the championship thing, yes, it holds some weight, but you can't just let that be the, the final uh, arbiter of, uh, of what you think about a player's uh, career. I think I saw right. uh, Bomani Jones tweet this out earlier that because of Charles Barkley's post-career, you know, kind of personality, we forget how good he was. We really do. He, you know, we we know he doesn't have a ring, and all, 
But he was very, very good to be six foot four and come up in the eighties and nineties playing in the post as physical as it was then, man, he was a beast. The round bound and rebound was the truth at the power forward position. And I think he's underrated because again he doesn't have that ring. And can flat get off the ground for his size, you know, always teetering, you know, the years where he was in better shape than others when he got you know, the savings he kinda got in shape. Uh the little breakfast club deal with Scotty Pippen in Houston, even though they didn't really uh have great chemistry. But even his years heck, even at Auburn when he was real big and then those years in Philly when he was, you know, taking the rebound on coast to coast, the dude could get off the ground. Like you said, six four playing against Kevin McHale's and, and James Worthy's and you know, the prototypical power forwards of the day. A quick jumper. Uh, we know how strong and physical he was. But uh, I'll never forget, I think it was a, a jump ball when we were playing the Rockets. And was he in Phoenix? may have been in Phoenix. He had a jump ball against Robert Ory. And Charles was off the ground and, and tapping the ball to a teammate. And Ory's still kind of, you know, unwinding and recoiling to elevate. And Barkley's already up and coming down. Uh, and I think there was one picture, too. Ori had a dunk. Like, he's just going to tear the rim now. And Charles is looking down at Ori as he blocked. Unreal for a man his size going up against much taller guys. And and, and let's, let's, let's think of something else here. You know, we talk about Michael Jordan and his legacy. And, you know, for some people, he will always be the great and, – and no one will – entertain other things about Jordan. He benefited from the structure of the league at the time. That as Pippen made his way, he signed, you know, that long-term deal that kind of locked him in to being like the, end up being the Bulls fourth or fifth uh, best, you know, highest paid player. Uh, You know, in today's market, does Scottie Pippen, would he still stay with Michael Jordan? <laughs> Jordan, and that's the thing is, Jordan, I'll say, lucked out to when he hit his peak, Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant, during the first uh, three-peat, came into their own. He had another Hall of Fame caliber player and an all-star big man to work with. We have to stop. I don't know what this narrative is that Jordan – walked on water, and took a bunch of nobodies to these titles. Yes, Jordan was very, very good, but the man had help. He had Pippen there, and you, we can badmouth Pippen and make Scottie Pippen synonymous with being a sidekick. Scottie Pippen was a very, very good player. And when you look at what he did without Jordan, you know, he had those 2,000 Blazers right there on the doorstep before collapsing to my Lakers, okay? <laughs> Pippen was a very, very good player. Yeah. Horace Grant, while not Hall of Fame, very, very good. Dennis Rodman, Hall of Fame rebounder. So this, this, this thought that Jordan did all this with a bunch of nobodies, I don't care how good you are in the NBA. One person 
does not win you a championship. It has never happened. It will never happen. You need at least three all-star level players to win a championship, period, period. I mean, but that's the way the NBA has been. So this notion that Jordan was six for six on his own, I don't understand it. That's just not the way it works in team sports. And I saw a tweet, I think it was Pro Hoops History or something like that earlier today. Yeah, uh, where it, it was talking about the Knicks starting lineup back in the day. And you had Willis Reed, Hall of Famer, Dayton Busher, Hall of Famer, Walt Frazier, Hall of Famer, Dick Barnett, perennial All-Star. It was like four Hall of Famers, and then you know, Dick Barnett was just you know, bringing everybody down because he was just a multiple-time All-Star. He wasn't in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, Dick was a weak link. But so it, it's been happening for a long time. Um, I'm trying to find, uh, trying to find it. And right now, he just put a tweet: "Your 82 Lakers, Kareem Hall of Fame, Magic Hall of Fame, Small Wilkes Hall of Fame, McAdoo Hall of Fame, Cooper, eight time NBA All Defense, and then uh, Norm Nixon as All Star." So it's this isn't the first time we've seen this stuff. I was trying to find that next tweet. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah, Dick Barnett, All-Star, Bill Bradley, Hall of Famer, Walt Frazier, Hall of Famer, David Busher, Hall of Famer, Willis Reed, Hall of Famer. Then he's got other been going on from before we've been born. This has been happening. Yeah, and and, and that's I, I think that's what really makes that 2004 Detroit team stand out. That they have been the last, the only team I can really think of that really didn't have one Hall of Famer on it. They had some all stars, obviously, but uh, that you know that was kind of an anomaly. But when you look at the Lakers, the Bulls, your Rockets in '94, '95, Akeem, Kenny Smith was an all star caliber player. Sam Cassell, Robert Ory, and then you end up with Clyde Drexler in '95, who I thought uh, he was kind of washed, but he was 31, I think, when Clyde moved over to the Rockets. That's you, that's what you need to win a championship in the NBA. It's never, ever been one person that, that, that does it. And we can romanticize and downplay how good Scottie Pippen was, how effective Dennis Rodman was. You can try, but the facts are that, yes, Jordan put up spectacular numbers. I'm not discounting that at all. I grew up watching him, and yes. But Scottie Pippen made some fantastic plays of his own. And when you've got the NBA's leading rebounder, Dennis Robin, on your team, how many possessions, you know, that he saves for you, it, it, they all work together. Michael Jordan didn't beat anybody by himself. He had help. Now, he didn't have to go and try to maneuver to get help. That's true. Yeah. But he had help. And all these guys want help. Uh, so th- that's what, when the, with this whole Kevin Durant thing, happy for him, go make you happy. Life's too short not to be happy. I'm not into the legacy talk because I don't know. Y- you just don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't really, I can't do it 
in progress. Uh, and that's kind of the way it is now. But when somebody retires, you can, I mean, the whole, it's called a body of work for a reason. <laughs> so let's see what the whole body of work is. Even if it's a guy playing too long and moving from team to team, or, but, you know, while people are still in their prime, LeBron's still just like 30, what, 31, something like that. So he's, he's peaked and, and still there. You know, he hasn't just went totally down yet. So no need to just put his legacy in stone just yet, you know. He, well, he might be in, chasing in a title space. with your Lakers in eight years. He might be a Laker eight years from now <laughs> chasing a title. But still, let that's part of his legacy. Let it play out. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That's that's what you have to do. And if if the Cavaliers can can get a, a, a fairly uh, modest priced you know wing player, I'm not sure who is available. Uh, they still have Tristan Thompson. They have some big bodies in the middle, which is how they dominate the Cavs. Once Tristan Thompson made themselves available, and LeBron decided to really start, uh, as Will pointed out, blocking. You know Curry at the rim. That's when the, <laughs> the series turned, and you know with the rant coming in, Bogut leaving, Festus Azili leaving. Who? What? What? What are the the? What will the Warriors do without a big body? I mean, yes, they're going to be able to score, but in a game six, game seven, where they have been bodied for six or seven games. And, and Durant has never been known as a guy that attacks the back of, of the basket relentlessly. You're kind of left with a similar situation to what we saw in Game Seven. And I know the Cavs the, uh, barely won, all that kind of stuff, but still, the Warriors did. They moved, uh, of course, Bogut to the Mavericks and Harrison Barnes, which I mean, the writing was on the wall for him once Durant got there. But they have also added <laughs> Zaza. Yeah, yeah. They added Zaza Pachulia. I know he played for the Hawks for a few years, and I think he was most recently. But he'll be the uh, Dallas, guy I believe. to take. Oh, okay. He'll be the big guy to take Bogut's place, and you know, block some shots and get some rebounds, and and provide a little banging and physicality down low with Draymond, and we'll see what happens with Azili and space and all that, but uh, Petulia will now be probably taking the boat road. Well, and the thing about that to him and uh, and David West, I, I like it as far as the physicality, but the one thing Bogut did really well and Draymond Green does really well is pass out of the post. And what the Warriors, I thought, were really, really effective at was getting their big in the high post and then sending Steph especially Clay Thompson, crash into the basket. Now, that, that's a part of their offense that I think they're going to have to look at. You know, do you move Durant there? You know, there's a, you know, and I'm glad I don't have to try to come up with ways to do that, but uh, there's going to be some growing pains for uh, Golden State. You know, I'm not going to pencil them in for 75 wins, but it's going to be fun. Uh, a lot of people say this doesn't make the NBA fun. It does because if you've got the Warriors and the Cavs, this is the, this is the way the NBA has been 
is you've got two super teams. Hello, Lakers and Celtics of the 80s. You know, Lakers and Celtics of the 60s and 70s. This is kind of the way it works. Uh, You know, they try to, with the collective bargaining, the owners want to limit this, that, and the other. But you can't make players sign where they don't want to go. That's the bottom line. You you, you can't. That's not the way the system is set up anymore. So uh, I wish Kevin Durant the best of luck, and I I, I think and I hope he'll be happy. But, you know, if he's not, he can just go uh, a little way down the road, you know, and and I know he'll look good in purple and gold. (laughs) And if he's not happy, (laughs) if he's not happy, He's not tied to Golden State for a long, long time, and might just hop on down the, the interstate, the Pacific Coast Highway, or whatever it is that gets you to L.A. Because Russ will already be there, uh, <laughs> so you know they could they could reunite in L.A. with uh, with Demarcus Cousins, and there you go. Now now we're putting banners back up in Staples, and you know. I don't want to say that I've had that thought, but I've had that thought as a Lakers fan. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And with that, we'll put a bow on this show. We'll see what happens with free agency the rest of the way. No doubt there won't be any news bigger than the Kevin Durant news, but we'll see guys and teams overpaying and players cashing in. That will continue. Uh We'll get Olympics and stuff coming up in a few weeks as well. Talk a little bit about the Cats. They're playing, they're practicing and stuff like that. You're hearing a little stuff coming out of practice. Cal will continue to post. We'll talk about all of that next week. But, man, we were just damn packed with guests tonight. The way it worked out. We appreciate all of them. Will West, Anthony White, Tim Bray, and Tim Biggs. Appreciate all of them coming on. Uh, and bring in something different to the show, and it was fun chatting with each and every one of them. Great show tonight. Had fun. Man, appreciate you contributing week in and week out for two-plus years that we've been doing this, uh, even back in the day on the other show before we started this one. Always fun. Enjoy it every Wednesday. Look forward to it next week. Hope you have a good evening and a good rest of the week. We'll do it all again next Wednesday. You do the same. Always fun. All right. For my man, Terry, TV 2.0 Brown, this is Vinny Hardy. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Cast Talk Wednesday. See y'all again next Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. We'll do it all again. Have a good night, everybody. Oh,